Hi, I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of Humanitu, a podcast that empowers connection through conversations of humanness and creativity. Today, I'm talking with singer-songwriter and musician Joe Johnson. This is a packed hour with a storyteller that learned at the feet of homegrown orators on the porches of southern Mississippi. And the conversation you're about to listen to is loaded with stories of entertaining, raw, and deeply human stuff. Like Joe says, the most common themes of his music are death, loss, and isolation, and they've been with him his entire life. He'll share why. But we find plenty of laughter in our conversation, too. Like how he ended up playing the famed Ryman Auditorium, former home of the Grand Ole Opry. We get into Joe's history in Mississippi and where he grew up in a boogie-woogie gospel music family and within easy-thumbing distance of New Orleans and the renowned Jazz Fest. We talk about Joe's grandfather, B.J. the D.J. Johnson, an unsung integral piece of the foundations of country music in Nashville, and why Joe resists his music being labeled outlaw country, or anything, really, even if the outlaw part for a time rang pretty damn true. There's fun and plenty of candor in these stories. There's talk of music, drugs, and friction with the law, and then a rainbow that led to a new foothold far, far away. And there's quite a bit more, really. Like I said, this conversation is chock full. It's got heart and humanity, maybe some jaw droppers, and just some really good stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with Joe Johnson. Joe Johnson, welcome to the Humanity Studio. Thanks for having me. I'm going to start off with where you grew up, because in all the bio stuff I've read, you grew up in Mississippi. I grew up in rural Missouri. Uh, I think I was college age before I had this revelation when Harry Connick Jr., of all people on stage, pointed out, this is the South. But you're really from the South. Yeah. And everything I've read says within reach of New Orleans. Yep. So I'm kind of curious, as a teenager, were you mischievous at all? Did you dip down into New Orleans and you know sneak off to your friends? Or maybe you didn't have to? Like, were your parents cool with that? Or what, what drew you down there to find, what, music, trouble? Uh, yeah, definitely uh, probably a healthy search for both. Uh, I would say that, you know, I grew up in, uh, more of a church family. Um, my, you know, younger years were spent a lot of time in church. So, uh, I think when I became a, a teenager, you know, there was the natural teenage rebellion that people go through, but there was this added, dose of rebellion I feel like it was apparent to me early on that there was a degree of control that I personally uh didn't jive with right and um as far as getting down to New Orleans you know goes I I I was going down there my whole life so I really can't say the first things that drew me to New Orleans I can say that uh as an adolescent we partied plenty enough in the woods around Morgantown to not have to go to (laughs) New Orleans to to have a good time. Um, And when I got, you know, into my early 20s, I started going to New Orleans a lot for the music and uh, the atmosphere, you know, of of music and creativity that's just oozing there. And um, as a matter of fact, probably, I don't know, maybe 23 or 24 is the first time I ever hitchhiked uh, to, you know, uh, another city, uh, okay. maybe thumb to ride across town here and there. But, um, anyway, I hitchhiked, uh, I lived in a trailer that was right off of highway 49, ran through Hattiesburg, Mississippi and jazz fest was going on and a bunch of friends were going to be down at jazz fest and I wanted to go and have a ride. So I just walked right out of the trailer up to the highway, <laughs> stuck my thumb out and ended up in New Orleans for five days. Oh, wow. <laughs> kind of bumming around. I slept in the park a couple of times, you know, uh, went to all kinds of shows and, uh, you know, I had a great time. Does anybody stand out for who you, you saw and, and heard there as far as like that really stuck or was it really more about the overall experience? Cause that sounds pretty incredible in itself. Adventurous. Yeah, it was kind of the overall experience. The funny thing, the band, the band that sticks out that I saw randomly, uh, and they're not even a band I'm really that into. I just was kind of walking around the bars and they they were playing in this bar uh, it was the counting crows and they were okay. playing under some other name they weren't calling uh-huh. themselves counting crows and so and it was in a really small bar like 50 people 
Max in this bar. And I didn't, I just walked in to get a beer and I'm getting, drinking my beer and I'm thinking, I think I know this song. This is like cover band. <laughs> and I turn around and then it's them. It's the Counting Crows wow. playing the Mr. Jones song. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought that, you know, that was kind of random and, and exciting. I saw a lot of people that year. I saw, uh, you know, when I, when I first walked in the gates, Widespread Panic was playing, which was kind of interesting. And then uh, from there, I went and saw Third World, LL Cool J, Lucinda Williams, and Bob Dylan all in the same day. So it's pretty... Pretty good day. Yeah, it's definitely not just jazz. No, like it brings no. together. That's that right there is quite a range. Yeah, on, and, on and my favorite, I think, uh, tent always at Jazz Fest. I've been to several Jazz Fests, and uh, much bigger fan of Jazz Fest than I am of uh, Mardi Gras. Incidentally. Okay, um, but yeah, my favorite tent is the uh, gospel and uh, okay, kind of New Orleans uh, soul gospel tent always a good time constantly you know and that was really a central piece in your family right i mean you already yeah. mentioned the church upbringing but your family was involved in gospel music yep. performing in those things yeah uh, i'm curious about uh that influence what that experience was yeah uh yeah i mean gospel music is uh how my parents met for instance, was in a recording studio, okay. Uh, recording tracks for a group called the Gospel Pages, um, which I have a couple of their records at home. Uh, and then my grandpa did gospel music. My other grandpa, uh, we went to what was it? It's called a Church of God, which is kind of like a sort of Methodist Pentecostal offshoot. Okay. Thing it's it's complicated, but anyway, he <laughs> he uh, led the music there. My grandma played piano, um, and it was like, you know, boogie woogie gospel music. I mean, my grandma played like Jerry Lee Lewis on the piano. Oh wow! And so you know, family get-togethers, holidays, and stuff was like gospel singing and harmonies and all these kinds of things. So it was always just part uh, of you know, who we were, the gospel music thing. My grand grandpa BJ was kind of the outlier. He did country music, country and, and okay. rockabilly and bluegrass and things like that. And, uh, and gospel music, but, the, but he was sort of the outlier. Was that considered a no, no at all? Like that type of music, like people would later think of yeah. other genres not to us. I mean, nobody, okay. uh, you know, no, it wasn't th that kind of music wasn't the devil, you know? I okay. mean, it was probably, uh, maybe, maybe, you know, before I was born, I don't know, you know, what kind of arguments my grandma and grandpa had <laughs> over the, <laughs> the kind of music he made. Uh, I know they weren't together when I was growing up. So obviously, you know, it didn't work well for her, but, uh, no, nah, I don't remember it that being the case, you know, Punk rock music's a different story, but I don't know <laughs> country music. And I've I've seen where you've described him as a rounder, a guy who got around. They yeah. were divorced then by the time you were a baby or so, so yeah. they weren't together. But were you influenced? Were, did you get to spend time with your grandfather, who was a radio man, besides being a Nashville uh, musician as well, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. He was, I mean, honestly, B.J. Johnson is... is an unsung sort of integral piece of the foundations of country music in Nashville okay. and South Mississippi and Louisiana. Uh, he was there, you know, he was in on the first rockabilly record label in America, which was out of Houston, Texas. And uh, so, I mean, he, you know, I think it was a point of pride for us in the family. You know, we were proud of, of what he had accomplished, but at the same time, no, you know, there, I, I, I always felt like when he passed away, I felt like I had missed out on so much time that I could have gotten to spend with him. Um, and I don't know if that's because maybe, you know, as a little kid, I was that, that some folks in the family were trying to maybe shelter me from this idea that, uh, you know, drinking and smoking cigars and hanging out in bars was a way of life, you know, to have, right. but, but it was his way of life for a long, long, long time, you know? And, um, uh, 
I didn't really understand the full scope of that until after he was gone. As when I was as a little kid, he didn't talk about it ever. Okay. We would go fishing, and he would never bring up Nashville. He would never bring up country music. Well, other than to to say how much he loved it, but he never brought up what he had to do with it or anything. It was not something that he lived and died by. Is that something that you can appreciate in a different sense of you have those memories going fishing with him and whatever other memories and that's special just for you yeah and i wonder if that's part of where he was coming from was this is our time together yeah and i don't need to put all this story of who i am on you yeah yeah no i think that's probably that's probably accurate one thing that he did do with me that uh was a big part of of who he was uh is he would bring me to the radio station wrjw radio station which is a i mean historic kind of cornerstone in you know southern country music broadcasting really i mean it was it's one of the early country music stations in the state of mississippi and um he always did he did the middle of the day show you know and he had hours of the day where he would sit in the booth and drop the records and play the records and you know tell stories in between the records of him and Elvis or him and Willie Nelson or all these things. And then he'd play records and he would bring me in when I would come to town. Well, when I was a little kid, he would bring me in and have me sit on his lap. And sometimes he would hold the microphone and say, I got my grandson, Joey here and, (laughs) and put the mic and I'd say, Hey everybody, you know, and all this as a little kid. And he would have me do uh, commercial bumps, you know, like a, you're listening to WRJW on the picky picky, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so he would have me do these things. And then when I, as I got older and teenager, uh, and into college and I was kind of self mobile and, you know, could go down to picky whenever I wanted to, uh, I would just stop by the radio station cause I knew he was on the air. I'd turn it on and hear him talking and I'd go by there and he would call me in and sit me down like he was interviewing you know, Eddie rabbit or somebody <laughs> and, uh, about just what I was doing in my life and going, you know, how school going, this and that, you know, having a conversation, but on the, on the air wow. <laughs> with everybody in Pearl River County listening into us, you know, when he was in that radio studio, I feel like even more so than when he was on stage, he was at home and he was that was that was home for him so if you came to the radio station to talk i mean you were coming to his house that's amazing and you have definitely grown up with mics yes. in front of you as long <laughs> as i can remember man and literally as long as i can remember i was singing in in church when i was like seven or eight years old okay and as long as i can remember you know i know that your grandfather also played at the ryman auditorium at the grand Ole Opry, right mm-hmm. but there is a story of you playing the Ryman as well. Do you <laughs> yeah. care to share that? Sure. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a funny story. Uh, I was on tour. If, if your listeners are familiar with, uh, the changing colors, Connor Bergall, uh, he and I, I mean, we go back 15 years, but, uh, anyway, we were on tour together. Um, this was after new West sound came out. So probably, I don't know, 2013, maybe. Okay. Uh, we were touring the South and, uh, we had been down in Mississippi for three or four days and were had come up through Alabama, through Birmingham and we're coming into Nashville. We had a day off and then we had a show in Nashville at this place called Dino's, which is the, apparently the oldest beer drinking establishment in all of Nashville. And tons and tons of famous songwriters have all played there for free for tips and tips, burgers and a beer. And so, uh, we, we were like, yeah, we'll love to do this gig, you know? So, uh, we figured we'd get into town, um, cause he had never been in Nashville and I hadn't been there for a long time. So we figured we'd get into town on our day off and walk around. So that's what we did. And, uh, you know, I think I was going to do some busking and he wanted to go see a few things, but the first thing we did was we went to the Ryman auditorium and we show up and, uh, of course, neither of us conceived that you would have to pay money to go into this place, you know? <laughs> and so we're on tour. We have no money. Uh, so we walk up and we're like, Oh man, uh, no money. You know, can't, can't do this tour. 
And so uh, I said, well, let me try something. So we went up to the ticket counter, and uh, I asked the lady sitting at the counter, I said, hey, um, are you familiar with BJ the DJ Johnson? And uh, she's younger, you know. She said, no, I don't think so. And I said, oh, he's my grandpa. He he's, used to play here a lot when the Opry was still here. And there was an old lady kind of filing paperwork behind her at the filing cabinets, and she turned around, and she says, I know BJ. <laughs> I said, do you? She said, yeah, is that your grandpa? I said, yeah. She said, why don't you guys come on back? And so she let the both of us into the back, into the building, you know. And uh, the way it is, if you go to the Ryman, they have tour groups. So, you know, you have 10 or 12 people in a group, and they all sit and wait, and then they're all taken on a tour, you know, together. Uh, but Connor and I were given free reign. We could go anywhere we wanted to in the auditorium. So we went backstage. We went all around. All on your own. All on our own, just nice. the two of us. Eventually, you know, there's this guy kind of sitting in, they have this little control room booth, which when the Opry was there, or when they have performances there, it's where the sound guy is, you know, uh, closed off booth. But uh, it's a recording studio as well, so when the tourists go, they can record themselves singing like Patsy Cline's Crazy or <laughs> whatever, you know, uh, to a pre-recorded track. And so uh, Connor, who's, you know, always the the diplomatic one he goes and uh kind of talks to the guy and tells him what's going on and that we're on tour and this and that tells him who i am my grandpa and so uh he says why don't you guys just come on in and let's record something and so we went and sat down and uh he they only had one microphone because it's really for vocal tracks but he put the microphone kind of between the guitar and my voice and uh, i recorded one of my grandpa's songs there in the studio after we finished, the guy's like, you know, oh, man, that was great. You know, that's probably one of the most enjoyable recordings I've done <laughs> in here in, in ages. And, uh, and then he told me, he said, actually, the last person to sit in here and record was Lionel Richie. Oh, and man. And I said, you're kidding me, man. And he said, no, nah, he was sitting right there a couple of days ago recording uh, King of the Road was huh. the song that he, he would just as a goof, you know, while he was yeah. there. And, and I thought, man, that is just crazy. So he he said, well, you know, uh, there's nobody in here right now. There's no tour groups. Or there, there's like a tour group waiting to get started. You could probably get up on the stage there and sing a song if you wanted to. I said, are you serious? And he's like, yeah, I don't see why not. So uh, we were like, great. So we went over to the stage, and, you know, I jump up on there, and I got my guitar. So this guy comes running up to me, and he says, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, Ah, uh, the other guy said I could play a song. Just, I'm just going to play a song. And we're going to go get out of here. He says, man, you can't do that. I said, why not? Well, he said, well, this is a a set for taking pictures for like souvenir photos. Uh. I said, I don't want a souvenir photo, man. I just want to play a song. He said, no, you don't understand this. This is set up for souvenir photos. I said, no, I do understand. I don't want a souvenir photo. I don't <laughs> care about a souvenir photo. Connor's got a phone. He can take a picture of me. I just want to sing a song. And uh, at this point, Connor's rolling his Got video phone. going on his so phone. So there's video somewhere on, on his Facebook or something of this whole incident. And uh, the guy says, listen, you know, uh, this is for pictures. If you want to pay me to take pictures, you can stand up here and play as many songs as you want. But I need, well, there needs to be an exchange of money here, you know for you to get on the stage and I'm like thinking to myself man even at the Ryman it's still pay to play in Nashville I guess you know you still have to pay to play even in a situation like this and I'm arguing with the guy finally Connor just says geez man and he just pulls 20 bucks out and says here dude here's the 20 bucks take as many pictures as you want so uh he the guy finally relents and goes to his camera and uh so I, I got to play a song so I played a song called Warrior's Mind that I wrote. It's a gospel song that I wrote for uh, some friends in a town called War, West Virginia, which is a whole other story. But um, I played the song and, you know, no microphones or nothing. The acoustics in the building are perfect, so you could just hear it everywhere. And, uh, you know, I'm standing there singing, and there's lights, and there's the sign that says, the, you know, whatever confederate gallery or whatever it says up underneath the balcony just you, the picture i've seen a thousand times right growing up you know and here i am doing it and singing 
And there was a crew of about five guys that were working on fixing some broken chairs. And there was about eight or ten other people that were waiting on their tour to start. And they all just went dead silent while I was playing the song. The guys stopped hammering. Everybody stopped and turned around and looked. And I finished the song, and it was this tiny little roar of applause (laughs) from about ten or twelve people. And, And there it was, man. I had just played the rhyming for my typical crowd of 12 people, but, uh, <laughs> but still that feeling was like something oh, absolutely. That's, that I'll never forget, you know? And, uh, I can't ever foresee a world while I will end up on stage at the Grand Ole Opry or on the at stage at the Ryman in front of a house full of people. But that experience meant just as much to me as anything you could imagine. So yeah, for sure. Willing to have that story. Yeah. Um, and then we got out of there, and I and I have a souvenir picture of me playing on stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, you better, right? Oh, after yeah, all it was that. 20 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a storyteller and one with sense of humor. Um, I mean, I've seen video of you doing this stuff on stage, you know, leading into songs. You do it with your songs. Mm. And I'm kind of curious about where that comes from, um, that sensibility for telling stories. You know, some people, I suppose, on a stereotype might say, well, in Deep South, this is a common thing. Mm but I don't want to be that foolish and just say, oh, well, you're Southern. I want to know where does it come from? And, um, you know, it's a gift. Somebody like me, I'm not, I'm not a guy who walks into a room and everybody just starts listening because I'm telling stories. I'm a little bit more of a wallflower typically. So I can really appreciate, and I see that as a tremendous gift. So I'm curious where that comes from for you, what it means to you to communicate in that way. It's just a Southern thing. <laughs> no, I'm I mean, in a lot of ways, it really, really is. I think when I grew up, there were so many storytellers that I remember. Uh, and it was, you know, I would go ride around with my other grandpa, Charlie, who, who I don't ever hardly talk about enough, but, uh, you know, he was just as influential, if not more so, in my life than my grandpa BJ. Because I spent okay. a lot of time with my grandpa Charlie. Very, uh, he was a simple man. He he he's a uh, ham radio operator. He used to work for NASA. Oh wow! Uh, in communications, he's part of the Apollo missions, and oh. really like a, an amazing, you know, low key life that he never really bragged about. But you know, I would go ride around with him a lot, and uh, we would go visit this friend or that friend or if I'd ride around with my dad and go visit this friend or that friend um you know they'd sit on the porch and you know the one just these couple of old guys oh ambling their way through (laughs) stories and then just you know all these little you know recollections and things and I would just sit there and soak it up you know and I mean so not even mentioning you know your well-known southern orators and storytellers like Mark Twain's or your Ernest Hemingway's or whoever, you know, Faulkner, Faulkner. he was Mississippi even, right? Faulkner. Yep, exactly. Uh, you know, not to mention those people, just your average old person, (laughs) (laughs) lady, man, whatever, uh, their ability to, to just be a storyteller uh, was something I just noticed my whole life growing up, and I felt always felt like that was really a part of Southern charm, so to speak. You okay. know, is, is that uh, the recollections of life growing up? But really, like storytelling and music. Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, the I mean, it's been done by so many folk singers over the years people like you know Buffy St. Marie I don't know if you know who that is but no uh an amazing storyteller like in a live setting uh whoever just you take your pick of any of the old um folk singers but the best I think storyteller folk singer that I've ever seen or heard is Todd Snyder I think his when I first heard his Near Truths and Hotel Rooms album it really shifted the way I thought of a folk singer performing because his, the way, what he will do is, you know, he'll play this song that makes you feel so warm and happy. And then he'll follow that up with just this out there crazy story that has you side splitting with laughter. 
and he'll follow it up with the most heartbreaking, gut-wrenching song that you can imagine. And, you know, he's got a different way of doing things now, but I'm talking about back in the early 2000s. And uh, that sort of roller coaster of emotions <laughs> from a, a live Todd Snyder sitting really just, op- I don't know, it, it changed the way I wanted to present myself in shows because I'm actually kind of naturally an introvert man I don't you know naturally it it takes effort for me to communicate the way that I do I understand completely and and I think it's I did not I did not foresee that word coming Mm -hmm. up from you um and I think that's probably because I'm an introvert so I look at somebody who gets on stage it's like well it, it doesn't even occur to me you must be somebody who likes to reform. You've sought this out, mm-hmm. but I completely understand. There, there. I think is a perception of introverts that we are incapable of that sort of interaction. Yeah. But rather, I think what we are is quiet. We're right. observant. We're thinkers, exactly. and then it takes more energy, which we can choose and do, to assert in the ways we want to. In your case, sing, perform. For me to have humanity and have these conversations. Yeah. I think you're right on the money there. That's that's really, that's that's what it, it's all about. I think to the you know, to an extrovert, it's hard to understand. You know the perception of an introvert, but it is, you know, I I consider myself in a when I'm in a room full of people, and I'm not talking. Some other person might look at that as you know maybe I'm not enjoying myself or maybe you right. know, I don't want to be there but that's really not what's going on what's going on is more of an observance of the interactions that are going on in front of me and sometimes thinking about how I can or don't want to you know participate in that interaction right. but it's not necessarily a bad thing there are t- there are dark times I think for anybody who's um, spending a lot of time yeah, in their head, spend a lot of time in their head, or has trouble kind of communicating. There, there's definitely dark times. There's times where you wish you could communicate better. That's something that I feel like I, you know, music has helped me in that way a lot. Okay, it forces me to communicate. I mean, it is communication. Like my songwriting is very much personal. Yeah, um, in a lot of ways, and even when I'm telling some narratives that I've just made up out of my head, there's still elements of my own personal experience in those stories, um, even if they're fiction. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I feel like writing first gave me the ability to communicate outside of my own head, and then performing helped me open up a little bit you know, in a real sense, in like a nuts and bolts sense, and as sitting here talking to you since. And uh, over the years, I mean, I've done lots of interviews and things on TV or radio or podcast, and, uh, you know, it. Bec- I think, I feel like it becomes easier over time to communicate in that way. But early on, I had a lot of trouble with it, for sure. I was the kind of guy that made, I've always had maybe three or four good friends, Right. And a lot of acquaintances. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. And, and I had friends who would look at me and try to, like you're, like you're saying at a party or something, they think you're having trouble maybe mm-hmm. engaging. You don't know how you're socially, mm-hmm. I don't know, awkward or something as part of it. And try to introduce me to other friends. Like, no, I'm cool. Yeah. I'm good with just hanging out with the same one or two or three people right. on a more frequent basis. I don't need 50. Right. And, and that's part of why I set up Humanity in the way that I do. I'm constructing this opportunity for conversations of depth. Yeah. That's why we talk about the things that we do here. Small talk isn't my thing. It's not where I'm interested and in. I don't feel particularly skillful with it. Right. But I'm really curious about you as a person behind this music and you as a creator with this music, yeah. right? Yeah. And so talking about songwriting, uh, I was curious to ask about that. If it's about the storytelling, if it's about you communicating something from yourself, which you're, you're already kind of speaking to. And if it's just, 
I guess, a love of performing and, and, and what that whole range can be where, well, I just do this because I'm an extrovert and I love the attention. And on this other spectrum, end of the spectrum where you're already speaking to, it's about mm-hmm. this is my way of communicating. Mm-hmm. So is there anything more there to elaborate a little? Can we, can we dig a little deeper? Cause I'm also a writer and I'm curious what that process is for you as someone who's looking at this song as a vehicle to say, this is what's going on inside of me. Even if it's using fiction to tell a truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, let me, I mean, there's that, there's a lot to that <laughs> okay. question, but, uh, I don't know. I don't have like, I don't know that I really have a set particular writing process. I don't think I've been asked this question like a thousand times and over the years I've really thought about this question. I don't really have a particular writing process. Sometimes things come to me, uh, in like a whirlwind, uh, a, you know, a bunch of lyrics or a particular melody or just a feeling or something that I want to write about will just, you know, come to me, boom, and I have to put it down. Other times I will sit down and really think about, you know, how do I want to, what do I want to write about? Do I want to write about anything? Uh, Do I want to write about nothing, you know? And uh, so it kind of just, I I don't know, it depends on the day. Sometimes the, the ideas come first through melody and then the lyrics come. Sometimes the lyrics come first, and then the melody. Um, I th- early on, before I was a songwriter, I, w- I wrote, tried to at least tried to write poetry and short stories. So, f- fiction writing is something that I think I started probably when I was twelve or thirteen, writing fiction okay. stories. Um, so that it's not hard, I don't think, for me to to do that. I think it's harder to write about factual things than it is for sometimes for me than it is fiction. Um, I could see that. Yeah. I think because I think sometimes in our heads we lose the creative aspect of that because we are focused on the fact. Yeah. It's almost like we're trying to adhere to that. You're, you're limited in your scope when you're writing about fact, you're limited to the ABC of the situation. Yeah. Whereas in a fiction song, well, like, let me, I'll give you examples in parallel, you know, from, from my own writing, like before we started this, you were talking to me about the song I wrote the champs last round, which is a telling of the last fight that Muhammad Ali was in. And then to prepare for that song, um, I mean, I was already aware of the fight, but to prepare to write that song, I watched the whole fight on YouTube. I sat down, I watched it from beginning to end. I paid attention to, you know, Angelo, his trainer. I paid attention to him. I paid attention to Trevor Burbick and his trainers and the crowd and the announcers and pulled from those things to put into the song. Um, when when I say, you know, uh, you got to keep fighting, Angelo shouts from the corner. That's because he did from the corner. Yeah. Go, you got to keep fighting, you know. So these little things that were real things that I wanted to, you know, put into the song. So when I started writing the song, you know, I had like, okay, here's a list. This is what happened. So these are the things that I want to write about, right? And then uh, there's a song I wrote called Ketchikan that's on New West Sound that is about a shipwreck off the coast of Alaska where 37 men died. One left behind a wife named Jolene and a newborn baby. Okay. Okay. I, I made that up. None of uh, that happened. I mean, it okay. happened, but it happened like a hundred times, you know. Right. Um, so I was a. There were so many details that I was able to put into this song. The fact that you know the character that died in in this shipwreck's father also died in a shipwreck, and his mother never. You know, his mother went through after his father died all the turmoil of trying to raise a son by herself and how she never didn't spend enough time with him and was always out and never really loved him the way that she should have. All of that was stuff I could make up because I'm making this story up. These characters can be anything that I want them to be, you know, but the power of truth through that as well. Sure. And and the, the, there are some universal human elements in being able to tell it that way and and frame it with that idea of his father as well. And it's, it's powerful. And yeah, well, my here's, here's a, tidbit you know my father my my 
natural father died when I was two years old. So my entire okay. life, I mean, from my earliest memories, I've had to think about, cope with, and understand death and passing and that life is not, you know, something that, that goes on forever. It is finite. And uh, that's one of the earliest lessons of my entire life. And it loomed over me like a cloud for most of my life. It affected my relationships with people, my connections with people in ways that I didn't understand until I became a man and okay. can look back on it. Um, so I, themes of loss, death, and isolation, while are maybe disturbing to some people, honestly, in a weird way, have been with me my entire life. So, you know, writing that character, writing the fact that, you know, this character's father passed when he was a child. And then, you know, the same thing to a, another child. It's like, it's something that I just can identify with in a 100% personal way. And that's okay. the nugget of my truth that's within this yeah. whole narrative story of characters that I just invented. Other songs, there's other songs that I could name that I've written that are narrative songs, you know, that fiction songs. Uh, I've got a song called Abraham, Isaac, and Esmeralda that I wrote. If any if any of your listeners remember the Colorado Springs band, The, Bro the Broken Spoke, which was fronted by a guy named Tom Scora, uh, who left years ago. The band is, hasn't been active for a long time. They were probably my favorite Colorado Springs band that I can ever remember seeing. Okay. Um, but anyhow... Uh, he and I wrote, always talked about writing together. And one day I called him up because I was two verses into what I knew was going to be a long story and was stuck. And so he came over and we finished this song together. But uh, it tells a story. It's like an old gunfighter tale where it tells the story of, of a character named Abraham who's in love with Esmeralda, who's bartender at a bar but Isaac is also in love with Esmeralda and he waits to kill Abraham and so he in Abraham's a terrible guy you know he's done horrible things and so and Isaac is more of an innocent guy that hasn't done these terrible things you know so he wants to exact some measure of of righteous justice you know in addition to the fact that he loves they both love the same woman so he tries to get the drop on Abraham as he's leaving the bar and you know, but they have a gunfight, you know, and I, he, Abraham kills Isaac and rides off away on his horse, you know, as Esmeralda's begging him not to leave. And he rides away on his horse and it's, Im, you know, implied through the course of the song that he was, he's also dead. He's shot and killed also in the duel. And so he, okay. as he's riding away, he dies on the horse, you know, completely fiction that we made, you know, completely made the story up from thin air, you know, but, uh, again, you know, there's the universal truths that people can always identify with loss, love, revenge, pain, yeah, death. These things are things that, you know, people will always identify with. And that's what makes a good story. So it makes a good fiction book, a novel, or yeah, a short story, story, anything. You know, that's what makes it compelling is that ability uh, to to identify with it. So I think I think I've kind of gotten away from your original question. No, no, <laughs> but, I, I uh, love hearing about the storytelling and the writing aspects, uh, especially as a writer myself. So this is is fascinating. Um, and I'm sure we could go song by song and talk. Oh, about sure, it, yeah, yeah, we could sit all day with that. Your so. your music is has been depending i suppose on the song right fit into blues to bluegrass folk americana roots mm -hmm. country but the one in particular that i'm curious about it's been described as outlaw country which of course then to me brings to mind guys like merle haggard waylon jennings Johnny cash you know maybe willie nelson sure and i'm curious how you feel about that label is that something that you identify with that you do you feel influenced by those guys and others uh, is it something you at all aim for? Yeah. No, uh, I don't care anything about any labels, really. Um, if people that that really, like, invest a lot into things like that, uh, I just feel like that you're pigeonholing yourself when you do that, for one. Um, 
the reason why I write all different kinds of songs is because the cats that I came up with in Mississippi that I cut my teeth writing with uh, were the kind of guys that would, if when we would get together once a week, four of us, and we would all share songs that we had written that week. These were the kind of guys that if I sat down and said, hey, here's one I wrote, and then the next week, hey, listen to the song I wrote. The third week I came and said, listen to this song I wrote. They would go, man, that's three country songs in a row. You should write a blues song, <laughs> or you should write a soul song, or you should write a rock song. They were the kind of cats that tried to drive themselves to always be changing. We all came from punk rock backgrounds, so and we were in bands together in high school, so it was like you know, the idea of constantly being in motion and change and individuality, you know, is something that has always been a part of who I am and my music and the way I look at the music industry and business and performance and everything else. The other thing I would point out is that one of the best outlaw country songs of all time is Waylon Jennings' Don't Y'all Think This Outlaw Bit Stung Got Out of Hand. Uh. So these guys before anybody was celebrating outlaw country we're saying all right pump the brakes here like we're not actually outlaws you know we've been you know right. some of us have never been to jail so you <laughs> know uh when you're talking about outlaw country if people want to call me outlaw country because i've been to jail then that's fine because i have i've broken many many laws in my 20 plus year music career so if you want to call me an outlaw country because of that cool but I don't feel like there's anything inherently outlaw about the music I make. It's it's just music. Or the attitude. Or the attitude. My attitude is, is less outlaw than it is good old-fashioned Generation X middle finger to everything. You know, like I, it's not... Coming from punk rock. Yeah. It's not something that, you know, I don't, I don't get up every day and think like, what can I do today to piss somebody off or what can I do to be controversial you know I don't I think that's lame I think with people that do that are doing that out of some desire to be relevant or to be exciting or to be dangerous or whatever more than they are doing that because it's who they are now if you're doing that because it's who you are cool as long as that's who you are you know but to me I've been a lot of things in my life I've been an outlaw I've been an in-law I've been, uh, <laughs> I'm a father now and a teacher and, uh, I'm at a different place in my life than I was when I was 22 or 23 years old. Right. You know what I mean? So, um, but I mean, honestly, man, people can label me whatever they want. I really couldn't care less at all. I never think about it. Well, I'm curious with, I mean, not to, not to go too far off track in here to whatever, but you, you say you've broken many laws in that music career time. Is there anything there that you're, you're willing to share that there's relevance to be like, was this just good old fashioned mischief or were you, you just going off the rails a bit with something? I don't know, man. I wonder what the statute of limitations on some things are. <laughs> well, we've I'll already talked about truth in fiction, so maybe this is fiction. Yeah, all right. Well, let me see, man. Let me tell you a story about this guy named John. He's a singer-songwriter. He was in this band, and uh, they went on tour through the South, and, uh, and those guys really liked to have a good time. They were young, and they were kind of a party band, you know? So they really liked to have a good time. And uh, the place they lived regularly, you know, had a lot of marijuana, a lot of mushrooms, LSD, alcohol, all the things that these guys like to do. Well, they decided they were going to go tour the southeast, which is a more difficult place to find these things. So these guys decided to load up an old camper trailer with all their music gear. And then inside that camper trailer, they hid some drugs and truck these things across 17 states most of which you could get life in prison for being caught with the things that they had so they're in Fayetteville Arkansas and uh, John is walking down the street with his keyboard player who we'll call Bob and uh, the two of them are just minding their own business they've just played a gig they're on their way to to, to the van to load up and get out of town and they're stopped by the cops Cops shake John down because at the time, John had really, really long dreadlocks down to his waist. 
and uh, real long beard. So they shake him down. He doesn't have anything on him. And uh, his friend, who uh, just happened to have like a little bit of weed on him, they shake him down too. This is just walking down the street, mind you. Let's throw away all constitutional rights here and we'll just search you because you look funny. And so they found a little bit of weed on him. Well, then, you know, maybe one of the other guys in the band might have started spouting off about their constitutional rights. And next thing you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a kind of a situation. So those guys had to uh, kind of try to talk their way out of it. Luckily, they had a manager there with them that was able to kind of smooth talk things over and get them out of the situation. But uh, John might have gotten in the truck and hauled a life sentence right through the state of Arkansas at four o'clock in the morning, uh, run out of town in Fayetteville, Arkansas by their entire police force. When they were on their way out of town at every stoplight stop sign, there was a police cruiser, every single one. Wow. It was the most, I would imagine if it were me, it would be the most nerve wracking experience someone could ever possibly imagine. (laughs) But I'm told that when they got out of town, they got out to the country to this little gas station in the middle of nowhere that was closed and uh some of the guys understandably you know had to relieve themselves so they pulled into the parking lot of this place and went around to the back of the empty store and you know did their thing and came back around and there was a sheriff's car sitting there waiting when they came back around and uh what i'm told is one of the guys said man, you know, uh, we're not causing any trouble, man. We just had to use the bathroom. Nothing was open. No problems here. And the sheriff might have replied, well, that's all right, boys. We do things a little differently out here than they do back in Fayetteville. So then they had to carry on to Mountain Home, Arkansas, which was another two-and-a-half-hour drive, and they were tailed most of the way. Uh, That would be something that if I had done, for instance – that would probably be a pretty outlaw thing to do, I would guess. Nerve-wracking. Quite nerve-wracking. So, uh, well, that's a good story. It is a good story. That, w- that tour was full of incidents like that. There was, uh, you know, obviously, <laughs> obviously this all happened to me. Uh, our, our hotel got raided by the police in Shreveport, Louisiana. And as they're coming up the elevator to raid our rooms, I'm going down the other elevator with everything to throw it in the dumpster. So it's literally seconds to spare, you know. Um, that's that, that whole thing was funny because we played at night in Shreveport, and then we had the bar. We had a night off the next night, and the bar asked us if we would stay and play a second night, and we said, yeah. So we left all our gear set up, went back to the hotel. The next morning we get a call from the bar that the state liquor board had showed up to shut them down. So we had to come get all of our stuff out of the bar. Is that because of you guys? No. No, it wasn't. I don't think it was because. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we did Never thought of that before. Yeah, no. That was the first time anything like that had ever happened. So we had to go down and get the, uh, all the gear. And we came back to the hotel after getting all the gear. And we went and got a couple of bottles of whiskey and just sat by the pool getting drunk, acting a fool. And that's what got the cops called on us later that night. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. But, uh, yeah, those cops ran us out of Tristan. We got run out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We got run out of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And we run out of Shreveport, Louisiana, all in the same tour. With some pretty close calls along the way, it sounds like. Extremely close. All extremely close wow. calls. Okay. Um, well, that's, that's but, a good you know, sample. that was a long time ago, man. I mean, and, and, and all jokes aside, uh, I feel very fortunate to have survived incidents like that in my life and several for sure and you know man i didn't survive some i i i I did go to jail a couple different times for possession and disorderly conduct and uh, various other things that in my youth i was very much uh i was never afraid of rebellion i was never afraid of doing something dangerous um but man, when I had, when I had children, uh, everything kind of in my life changed. All your priorities yeah. shift when when you have a kid, and I've got two of them now. And uh, it's been it's been a number of years since I've been that outlaw. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and and I've seen that it's you've been you've mentioned actually it was in a recent Instagram post that you mentioned being clean for fifteen years. Yes. I also have seen that you moved from Mississippi 
Wait, to can I clarify something? I've yeah. Been, I've been clean from pharmaceuticals for 15 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Not clean in general. But I have been <laughs> I have been sober for All right. I have been sober for 4 months. Okay. Well, congratulations. Thanks. And uh and I'm wondering, maybe I'm fabricating this, but you're going to tell me is if it was about 15 years ago, clean from pharmaceuticals and about 15 years ago you moved from Mississippi to Colorado. Was there any connection there? Were you trying to put some distance between old habits and new life? What or yeah. is that just totally coincidence? No, it, it, that's exactly what went down. Well, there's a combination of that and, and some coincidence. Basically what happened, as I mentioned before, you know, there was a group of four of us that would get together once a week and write. And uh, we had all been to high school together. And uh, of that group, I mean, we had a falling out with one of the guys, but the other three of us still were getting together pretty regularly. And then one of the guys, a guy named Phil Graves, went and – moved to Nashville to try to do the Nashville songwriter thing. And so um, that left me and another guy named Ramsey together in Hattiesburg. And so he and I were getting together a lot. We were hanging out pretty much every day. And we had been uh, best friends for several years since we were in high school. Uh, so we were spending a lot of time together writing, hanging out, and, you know, getting high, doing whatever. And, um, what happened was um, Ramsey was out of town working in Memphis and um, he and another guy, you know, were getting high and taking some pills and um, he passed out, fell asleep while he was eating. The other guy had already fallen asleep, but he fell asleep while he was eating and he choked and died. Oh, man. And uh, when the news came to me, it came via somebody who I did not get along with at all was not a friend of mine um this guy it was almost like this guy took almost some pleasure in telling me this so it was a really extra traumatic hit when I found out about it and uh, all of a sudden man you know I'd lost my best friend partner writing partner partner in crime uh all in one kind of fail swoop and things had just really started coming together for me as far as writing goes. Like, I was the late-to-the-game songwriter with the rest of those guys. They had all, all been writing for years. I didn't even know how to play guitar. They taught me to play guitar, you know. So uh, I was kind of late to the game from, from those guys. But I had just recorded or was getting ready to record an album, um, which I did and ended up dedicating to him. But uh, I was, you know, just kind of getting my feet under me in gigs and playing some gigs and getting making the connections and stuff and so this really was like a big hit man you know it really sideswiped all of us that, that were his friends so you know long story short uh i obviously the first thing i did was get high and um uh, but over the course of the next few months like as i made the record and i was trying to deal with what had happened and um, I started getting feeling the desire that I needed to get away and I remember I went and uh, uh, this is another hitchhike to New Orleans situation I hitchhiked down to New Orleans and I'm walking around the French Quarter and just out of nowhere this I hear a voice is hey hey Joe and I turn around and it's Ramsey's girlfriend that you know okay. he, he had left behind and another friend of theirs and they're like hey what are you doing here you know just walking around you know clearing my head uh, what are you guys doing here and they're like oh we came to town for a keller williams show which is not somebody i really care to listen to or anything you know and i'm like oh that's cool she goes do you want to go i said ah really i don't have any money or anything she goes no i've got ramsey's ticket this was we bought this a week oh. before he passed away and I brought this ticket down here feeling like he would want me to give it to somebody. And I know he would want me to give it to you. And so I was like, man, I can't say no to this. So I took the ticket, yeah. went to the show. After the show, we went and partied, you know, and got, did what we did. And the next day I woke up and it was like this, I don't know, there was this sort of 
feeling like some kind of weight had been lifted off. I think because I felt like I had made some connection with Ramsey by taking his ticket and going to the show. Like yeah. somehow, I don't know, somehow I felt connected with him. And uh, the wheels were immediately just, just started turning. It was like, I have, got, I need to make some changes. I need to get clean. I need to get away from this. And I couldn't get away from it. It was, I had surrounded myself by that point with too big okay. of a network of people yeah. to get things from, do things with. And uh, I just happened to have a couple of friends who were um, like, rainbow hippies man um you know they go to the rainbow gatherings they travel all around the country gypsies you know and they've okay. been staying with us for a few months they were getting ready to go to a rainbow gathering in utah and uh they were like hey man if you want to go with us we'll get you out of here and i'm like i don't really want to go to the ra the <laughs> rainbow <laughs> gathering because they would go for two months you know and i'm like i don't want to go to the woods for two months with these hippies and it was like, just at the same time as that was happening, I get a call from my brother. My brother says, hey, man, uh, I just moved to Colorado. So what are you doing in Colorado? He says, I'm working. I'm going to be here for you know at least two years. You ought to come out and visit. And I said, man, I'm actually thinking of riding with these friends of mine to Utah. And he's like, oh, well, you're going to come through here. Just get in the car with them and come out and come visit and so that's what i did uh we okay. we came they they we all came through colorado stayed a couple of days with him i ended up leaving and going because i was having a pretty good time more more fun than i thought i would <laughs> so i ended up going to utah to the rainbow gathering and spending like three about three weeks or four weeks there and definitely ready to leave when we left more than ready to leave but uh, but i was like you know what else am i gonna do i need to i need to get by myself yeah. And so at the end of that, basically, man, it was like a, I'd been on the road for about two months and had not done anything, no drugs at all. And uh, that made me a little weed, but no drugs at all, really. And uh, yeah, so after this rainbow thing, we came back to Colorado and I think the Grateful Dead, some it, grouping of that was playing at Red Rocks. So we went there to Red Rocks. We sold peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a dollar a piece made a little bit of money, and then we came back here to the Springs, and uh, at that point, I told them, I said, hey, listen, this is last stop for me. I'm not going back to Mississippi, and they're like, really? Because I'd left everything. <laughs> I left all my clothes, records, everything was wow. in Mississippi. I had a backpack, a pair of boots, and a guitar, and that was it, but I said, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do, but somehow this place feels right, and it, I feel like if I go back to Mississippi, I'm going to fall back into the same patterns that I was in, and, uh, yeah, that was it. I pitched a tent in my brother's yard and stayed there for about a month or so in his yard and found a job and, and started meeting people, playing music. And next thing you know, 15 years later, here I am still. Wow. Yeah. And with family and yeah. everything now. Everything. Yeah. And I, yeah, exactly. I, I've had, you know, two kids. I met an amazing network of friends and family since I've lived here and people that have, you know, been supportive i think the music community musicians and concert goers in this town have really it took a little while at first for me to make the connections with these people uh, when i first started playing music in this town there weren't solo singer songwriters playing shows there was everybody was playing with a band there was no one guy with a guitar on stage okay. anywhere in town that sound like super old when I say that, but it's true. <laughs> it was only a few years ago, but it's true, man. There was none of that. And in Mississippi, there's people like that everywhere. Okay. Here, there was nobody like that. So it took a minute to get a foothold, but the community took to what I do and made me feel at home and have propelled me to a point where I'm self-sustaining, you know? That's fantastic. So I can't, I can't, say enough how much I have appreciated being here and that turn that pivot point in life that even though it took a couple of months when you're going out to the rainbow gathering and all these things but ultimately to recognize that feeling mm -hmm. all my stuff's back there but you know what my future is starting here yeah that's exactly that's amazing it. yeah it was it was the feeling man that I'll never forget that first time I walked from my brother's house he lived in Manitou Springs 
And I walked from his house down to Manitou. And I walked the circle of Manitou Avenue up and down from the park to the other park and back. Soda Springs to Monument Park. And I'll never forget that feeling of like, I've been a lot of places, but man, this is a place. Like yeah. This is, this is really a place. This, there's a feeling here and energy and emotion. And I was, it, I mean, it was perfect for me at that moment. And I definitely felt like, man, this is the future for me. This is my future. I'm going to stay here. I just knew it from the minute I walked through that town the very first time. Man, we've covered a lot of amazing things. And I appreciate your sharing so much and so honestly. Yeah. And this brings us to our last question, which I ask everyone. And you can take it how you take it. Answer it how you answer it. But everything we talk about with humanity relates to humanness and creativity, who you really are as a human, how you exist and live and and be in the world. And I'm curious if you have sort of, I guess what serves as a summary thought, how do you live or try to live humanness and or creativity in your life? Well, I think to answer that, I would have to think about humanness itself. And when I do that, I think like what sets us apart from the animals, you know, so to speak. And there's really not a lot that does that. The things that do, I feel like, are our ability to communicate with each other, our ability to feel empathy, and our ability to be an individual. Those are three things that I feel like really, to me, are humanness are what it means to be a, a human. And to that point, one thing I try to practice, and I feel like this goes for if you want to be a good human being or if you want to be a good songwriter or artist or anything else, the number one thing, and this is something I teach students that I teach songwriting to, the number one thing is empathy. And to be a writer, to be a communicator, um, you need empathy. You need to be able to look at someone else and put yourself in their place to try to understand their emotions or feelings or pains or triumphs. And that takes empathy. So that's something I try to practice in my daily life. And it's not, I mean, it's something that you naturally have, but it does take work to, yeah. to really think and feel empathy um as communication is something that obviously as a writer is paramount to me is like the ability for me to communicate myself or the collective of other people's you know ideas and feelings and emotions to make a connection with somebody through words is something that is a truly human trait and something that, you know, obviously I live in my work and my art is all about that. Um, and then the last thing is individuality, which uh, I feel like is probably the thing that I have strived for the most in my career and, and in my life is individuality, whether that be, you know, an outward individuality, like somebody says, you know, I, I've got 10 foot tall green Liberty spikes and that makes me feel like an individual. That's cool. You know, um, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but that's not for me to decide. The whole point is, you know, what do you feel like makes you the individual? What, what sets you apart from other people in yourself, you know? And that's something that, like for me, my, you know, individuality manifests itself in complete, well, as complete as I can be, uh, honest and, uh, open, you know, that's something that, um, I feel like in the music business is hard for other people to achieve a lot of times. I feel like it's a natural tendency to close when you're a performer to close yourself off personally and try to guard your 
personal feelings or thoughts or emotions and ideas. Um, but I tried for the opposite. You know, my thing with air quotes is, you know, I'm the guy that's, that's telling you exactly in honest ways how I feel or see the world. I'm not trying to mask it behind anything. I'm not trying to put up fronts uh, to protect myself or others. This isn't meant to be um, controversial or in, in your face or anything like that. It's just, it's just truly the honest truth. I am very completely comfortable in my opinions. And that doesn't mean I, don't, I, th- I can't be told that I'm wrong and see that. But I'm very comfortable in how I see the world and how I communicate with it. And I don't concern myself if that offends other people. That's really not something I can control. Right. I can only control how I act or react. I can never control how other people act or react. Yes. And so I, I try to let that go. And I tell you, you know, I communicate and express myself in the way that is true, feels true to me and try to not really worry about the consequences all that much. Um, like I said, that doesn't mean I'm an asshole. <laughs> I tr- I'm, I'm a nice, kind, empathetic person, but I am an individual. And whether that's good or bad, however that sits with other people, is really up to them. But to me, yeah. as long as you're an individual and empathetic and you communicate, then, you know, you're living humanness. And so that's what I try to do, man. And, you know, anybody that knows me knows that. And that's why I was really excited to sit down and do this with you. One thing about radio interviews, they're always very contained and they have a very short amount of time. And there's only certain questions that get asked and only certain things that get answered. And I really enjoy the openness of a sit down talk like this. Well, Uh, good. And yeah, you know, hopefully my ramblings have entertained it. Oh, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this has yeah. been fantastic. Yeah. And Joe Johnson, thank you very much Thanks, for Andy. being part of this conversation, uh, ongoing conversation of humanism and creativity uh, with me and Humanitu. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Joe Johnson, y'all, in today's Humanitu conversation of humanness and creativity. Leave a comment and tell your favorite part of the conversation with Joe at Apple Podcasts. If you have feedback on this conversation or the Humanity podcast series that you'd like to share with me, send me an email at adam at humanity.co or reach out by Instagram DM at humanity. As always, I welcome your subscribing and following the Humanity podcast and sharing it with those close to you. Together, we can cultivate a more thoughtful, kind, and creative world. The Humanity podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts, and it's always ready to go on our site at humanity.co. And now is the time I ask you a question. How are you living humanness and creativity in your life? I'm Adam Williams, creator and host of the Humanity Podcast. Thank you for listening.